Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Gannis Tracy. Hello. This is episode 38, and today we're talking with Dr. Catherine Peewee-Nofkit-Briner. Dr. Briner is a linguistics scholar and expert and researcher on the early historic horn in America. Her doctoral research and website is titled The Lost Legacy, The Horn in Early America. She plays E-flat alto horn with Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band and is a former tenor horn with the Orchid City Brass Band in Southern Florida. So we're super excited to finally have Dr. Briner on the show. We've been uh, following her work for a long time now. We're really excited to be able to share this discussion with all of you. Yeah, we really enjoyed getting to talk to Dr. Briner and we think you'll enjoy um, the conversation as well. And it's really a topic that I personally didn't know much about at all. I feel like the the, the horn kind of tends to be the instrument that um, doesn't get talked about very much. Um, so we were glad to talk to her specifically about the early days of the horn uh, in America. If you like what you're hearing, you can support the show on Patreon and Teespring. We're also on all social media platforms as well as YouTube. So you can go follow us uh, on whatever your favorite platform is. That way you'll never miss uh, anything that we put out. And we also have a website that's eabbpodcast.com. And up there, you'll find show notes for every episode and uh, a wealth of resources uh, that we've put up there for you. So we do hope that you'll check that stuff out. Without further ado, here is our discussion with Dr. Briner. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Dr. Briner, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We're super excited and super pleased to finally get to chat with you today. So thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I was hoping that maybe we could hear a little bit of your your musical upbringing and background first before we get into some of the, the meat of the episode. So can you maybe tell us a little bit of of that, your, your musical background and upbringing, please? <laughs> Absolutely. Um I am a uh, horn player and a bass player. So like Willie Ruff, if you're familiar with Willie Ruff, the jazz horn player and, and bass player. Nice. Uh, he was my hero growing up. <laughs> uh, so went through you know public school education in Texas, um, ended up going to the University of Michigan and playing there uh, with Lowell Greer and um, moved back to Texas to finish up at Stephen F. Austin State University and then played all over the world. Um, as well as and um, we eventually moved to Florida and so began playing in Florida and getting uh, my master's degree there and then a doctoral degree with Jack Masari at UNC Greensboro Very nice. um, in historical horns and jazz uh, jazz horn. Very neat. So with the the classical horn the jazz horn and the historical horn was that kind of three interests that were kind of with you the whole time or did those interests kind of pop up in, in different areas of your upbringing? Uh, they actually were, I was interested in uh, historical horn quite early because in high school, my everybody had to do the big junior turn paper, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, mine was the history of the horn. Okay, there you go. Was that always kind of a more research interest for you or was that something that you were able to have some hands-on experience with as you were uh, going through your schooling? It was a little bit of both. Um, so we had a... Uh, a married couple that had gone to Detmold in Germany, uh, who were the horn teachers for my high school. So I went to a really, really large high school in Texas. And so we all know what those band programs are like. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because they had been at Detmold, they had did like par first horns, first plus horns, 
Um, we would play uh, little quartets all the time from these little hunting books that they had brought yeah, back. Nice. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I always listened to like Del Clevenger, um, Barry Tuckwell. And of course he did like a Baroque album, but it was, it was modern horn at that time. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I bought a Mexico city Philharmonic album of Lowell Greer and he was on Modern Horn, but it was fantastic. And so when I ran across another recording by Lowell Greer, I went ahead and bought it and it was Natural Horn. Mm, yeah. And um, so, you know, he, the nuance that you can get with hand horn, uh, especially with a composer who knows Natural Horn um, is just fantastic. So that's what, what I wanted to do at that point. I knew that I wanted to play classical horn. I knew I wanted to play romantic early horn. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why I ended up going to the university of Michigan, um, as both a, a chemical engineering major and a music performance major. Oh, there you go. Oh, wow. um, Those work together. So, so yeah. naturally, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Lowell was there. So I did, I had my undergrad, we, we had a lot of fun playing natural horn, uh, and he would buy, uh, like Chinese food on a Friday night and we would all sit around and play and eat and hang out on a, like a Friday, a Thursday night. Hmm. Um, and then just, you know, I just continued from there. And then Jack was really um, an amazing early horn enthusiast at UNC Greensboro. Hmm. And we had a fantastic, we called it the Baroque ensemble, but really it was any type of genre, any type of instrumentation we could make up. Um, hmm. So Geza Cordes was the coach for that group. And we, we were able to play fantastic literature um, and basically choose what we wanted to play, which is really fun sometimes. Yeah, that's awesome. With all of these uh, academic institutions that, that allowed that performance and experience on natural horns, was that something where the schools had those instruments or were those teacher owned or was it expected for the students to kind of go out and, and get these things? Uh, it was a little bit of all three, actually. Okay. And um, at Stephen F. Austin, we really had to, to get our own equipment. Hmm. Um, at UNC Greensboro, we did have studio horns. Uh, and then Jack had quite a few horns as well, personal horns that he would let the DMA students use. Oh, cool. um, and then that's when I started buying instruments. So I have like a, there's a Serafinoff horn behind me up on that top shelf in the case. Mm -hmm. That's uh, a Baroque horn that has nodal, uh, nodal vents, um, which is kind of controversial, uh, but it's fun. And actually it's anti, uh, it's anti intuition. Like you raise your finger to lower the pitch. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm always like, no, it's the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> As Stephen and I are, are both euphonium players and a lot of our uh, the podcast and my personal doctoral research is, uh, you know, usually valved brass and, and mm -hmm. cornets and sax horns and, and those sorts of things. With the natural horn and and the early horn that you had experience playing with, are those instruments mainly reproductions or are those instruments that are original? Are they like relatively easy to get? Like what? What's that world like? Was it, it is something that, at least I, I don't know. Maybe Stephen has a, a secret, uh, <laughs> a secret hobby that I don't know about. But I, no. I am totally unaware. <laughs> Not relating to natural horns or natural trumpets. No. <laughs> okay. 
Um, it's about 50-50. So you can find older instruments. Um, Lowell Greer, uh, so funny, the horn that I borrowed from Jack Masari came to me through Jack, but had been found by Lowell in a monastery in Peru. Um, and so it was an original horn. It was, I think, from 1836 with a painted bell. It was beautiful. It had a saltarelle with the valves that had been added. Um, and then, you know, in a lot of cases, we do have to buy reproductions just because the original horns are starting to get very cost prohibitive. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that was one of my questions was kind of wondering if, uh, if those original horns that their prices are kind of starting to go up there with a lot of these other antique instruments yeah are, they definitely are, are are reproductions uh being made in uh by multiple makers and in, in vast quantities or is that kind of like a, a niche little thing that not many people are doing it is still a niche so serafinov uh, rick serafinov of course makes all kinds of wonderful reproductions um i know that lowell uh had at one point did have a workshop in his basement where he was making some some really great reproductions mm -hmm. um but it is by far and large you know uh if what's the word i'm looking for valvectomy <laughs> So a lot of people, when they start to experiment with natural horn, they will get an old single horn, cut out the valve section, make it into a, a natural horn. The problem with that is that the modern bell, the throat of the bell is much too large for um, really great hand, what we might call handering <laughs> instead of fingerings, right? Because um, you have to close the bell throat much, much more. The, the, the early natural horn the bell throat is probably about like that yeah so, so the, the taper is less less drastic in the, mm -hmm. the earlier ones <laughs> yeah interesting um maybe also kind of along similar lines of uh again apologies not being super familiar <laughs> with the world no. and, and i know some of our some of our listeners are going to be in the same boat uh loaded question we don't have to get super deep into it mm -hmm. can you maybe give a a brief uh, a brief history of the horn <laughs> as many books and dissertations are devoted to that. I know that's a lot to ask, but maybe a, a cliff notes kind of mm -hmm. reader's digest version. Sure. Uh, it's been a long time since my doctorate. Let me think about this. Uh, well, so, um, you know, we have this history of going back and looking at the common ancestors for trumpet and horn. So conch shells, shofars, that type of deal. Um, coming out of that tradition, we have the post horn. Um, so we do kind of claim that in the horn tradition. Uh, so we have this post horn tradition and moving over to like parfurs horns, hunting horns, uh, pre Baroque horn. Um, and there's all this apocryphal type of uh, uh, stories about Spork and, uh, you know, going and Count von Spork, I think that was his name, uh, going to Paris and finding these horns, taking them back to Bohemia training, having his players trained in Paris, then coming back to Bohemia. And so we have this uh, kind of parallel uh, track of Paris and then Bohemia uh, with the, the, uh, the, the two different types of hunting horns. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, uh, that's when we start to see the innovations and in musical being introduced into the orchestra. Uh, so, uh, once we get to that point, most people think of Giovanni Punto. 
Um, and he's often credited with, you know, the first stopping mute uh, hand technique, though he was probably codifying a lot of what was already going on at the time and not like just inventing it out of, uh, <laughs> out of uh, nothingness there. Yeah. What what about what century was was that happening in? Uh, I would say seventeenth at that point. Okay, gotcha. Um, then we start to see the introduction. Well, end of the yeah, end of the seventeenth into the into the eighteenth. Gotcha. Um, and then you start to see the little court orchestras with the two pairs. Well, one pair of horn at first, then two pairs of horns. Um, no crooks at this point. Probably fixed pitch horns. Uh, and then you would have to have a different horn for each key. And then mm -hmm. um, introduction of the crooks, first practical system of the crooks, which would be, gosh, 1735-ish, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, you start to see the, the conservatories, so the, the Paris Conservatory. Um, and then, uh, so let's see, what's after that? introduction of the valve so there's a good hundred years in between there <laughs> gotcha <laughs> so 1835 is uh, is really when we start to to talk about the horn uh as a chromatic instrument and even at that point it's still um using the valves as a and i don't i don't know that this is true for any other instrument with valves you know we start to see the introduction of uh the valve using them as crooks with hand technique rather than as being fully chromatic yeah yeah so like mm. they would uh put down a valve to kind of lock it into mm -hmm. pitch like a yeah, quicker way to change out the crook kind of thing. yeah yeah so second valve you're in horn and e right interesting oh. this um, seems like a much more difficult way of doing things and but i guess that's that's what horn players would have been used to <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. yep 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 um, and in fact back. that's how we think that um the levy brothers played uh, if you think about like the Brahms uh, compositions that uh, use horn, mm -hmm. so Aftenstrom, uh, the hunt, there's like a, a hunting piece for men's chorus and four horns. Gotcha. And so we think that that's what he was doing is using it as a as a crook with hand hand technique, and the other players were using uh, or not valve horns but crooked horns. Gotcha. Gotcha. Are Hunting horns and natural horns essentially the same instrument, just hunting horns are smaller, or are the, is that not like like a hand kind of horn, or is that completely not accurate at all? <laughs> uh, it would depend on the situation, no, to be no. honest. So um, the hunting horns they tend to be wider looped than mm -hmm. the natural horns, mm -hmm. just for sitting purposes. And if you think about it, they were using the the hunting horns; they were putting it over their shoulder, over their head to carry it mm -hmm. um and the bore on the hunting horns is quite quite small okay mm. interesting probably probably to make it a little bit uh <laughs> shriller to be able to to travel mm -hmm. further outside kind of thing right Researching, you have a website called the Lost Legacy, uh, kind of the horn. 
um, which focuses on the horn in America. So how did how did the horn kind of migrate over to America, and then how how was it functioning? I I, I laughed at uh, one point. I was at a, a Trump uh, conference in Miami. Actually, they brought over this like all star group of uh, Trump to Chas players. Uh, from France and Germany. And um, I said, you know, as soon as the first ship got here, there was a horn <laughs> and come to find out, guess what? <laughs> so um, in six, no, 1565, uh, I think is the year I'll have to double check that that date. But um, the, the fort that the French uh, built in Florida, Fort Caroline, uh, and then there was uh, Fort Augustine. Um, they there were horn players on that boat and in the the settlement. So uh, the reason we know this, other than we just think that there was a horn player on the ship, is that when the Spanish attacked Fort Caroline, the governor actually had his own. The Spanish governor had his own orchestra and choir, and um, he spared. He killed everybody but spared the musicians to add to his orchestra. Yikes. So, um, and then they were, you know, when the, the British came, they were able to uh, free those prisoners and they went back to France and there was a deposition. So we have all these testimony, uh, oh. testimonies about that. Mm. Um, but we don't know if it was Menin or Massayin. Um, so, you know, as soon as those ships showed up to, to this continent, we, we saw horns. Very cool. Interesting. I don't know. Was was the horn tradition then at that time still uh, small court musicians and and those types of small ensembles? And then how how did the horn evolve? Kind of once it was here, did it was it attached to any of the evolutions happening in Europe, or did it develop independently here? So that was actually part of the lost legacy thing. <laughs> um, you know, we have this idea in the horn world that the history of the horn uh, in America kind of just spontaneously happened in the 20th century. Hmm. Um, people showed up towards the end of the 19th century, and then boom, we have these major orchestras. But in truth, it really did follow a parallel track with, with Europe. Hmm. So the same type of, uh, you know, musical training, people would get their training and come to America uh, they would form little orchestras. So we had the the Moravians who had orchestras from the moment they got here. So 1735 in Georgia, actually, not even in the the, col the upper colonies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there was a place called Spring Place. Uh, and it was only from 1735 to 18, uh, no, sorry, 1735 to 1740. Uh, and they ended up leaving because of conflicts with uh, some of the indigenous peoples there. Mm -hmm. uh, so they sold the horns before they left, but they had horns at their other settlement. And so that other settlement Bethlehem, up in Bethlehem, mm -hmm. you know, they had, uh, they had a full orchestra. They played Handel, they played Stomach, they played uh, Pleil, they played a bunch of Moravian composers, mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. Yeah. David Michael Moritz, I think was the, the main one that they played. Gotcha. I remember so we do... reading about the, uh, the Salem Moravians and mm -hmm. Salem and Bethlehem uh, would in the, the book would reference the, the first ones down in Georgia and how it was short lived. But it's cool to know that there was music and, and horn happening down in that 
that first Moravian settlement too down there. Yeah, and the governor, I think, uh, of Georgia was the one who who bought the horns. Actually, okay. <laughs> Did the horn? only kind of survive in America through the orchestral tradition or did it have kind of other outlets that allowed it to develop and and kind of do its own thing which I know at least in the uh the brass band tradition you know that we were experiencing in the 19th century that a lot of our uh research and stuff is focusing on you know we we talk about American brass bands forming out of bands of music mm -hmm. that, that would you know normally have the natural horns in them and then once it gets into brass band land you you hear about like e-flat alto horns and and yeah. that's kind of it so mm -hmm. uh yeah what what was the 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 horn doing during in, in all that time <laughs> so they were um we had the military groups right the marine band um there were all kinds of uh harmony music groups that had popped up um before like in the 17, late 1700s. Mm -hmm. um, and harmony music in the Moravian groups too. Uh, what I love about the Moravian groups is just the record keeping. <laughs> like if you oh, want yeah. information, go there. Yeah. Um, but there were cities that had uh, what we call the city concerts. So New York City had them, Philadelphia had them. Uh, so it would depend on the people that were in town at the time, but they would form little orchestras, uh, so we did, you know, we saw this, uh, the development from the military music itself um, with the little orchestras and with the traveling groups. So like a theater group, like the Old American Company, they always had two horns. Hmm. Um, and a lot of times those groups were, you know, what we might call double-handed, where they were string players and brass players or wind players mm -hmm. um, and could field either a band or an orchestra, especially as you get further into the 19th century. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Did um, the did the those instruments acquiring valves kind of happen along with the the European developments too, or did the the horns acquire valves with their own kind of history and and background here? So just like in Europe, the the natural horn persisted for far uh, longer than any other any other instrument in terms of naturalness. <laughs> um, you know, the first valve horns that I found were in 1835 and 1836 in America, which I thought was very early. So everything that I found, I thought that was super early, um, uh, which is why, you know, I went back to that lost legacy idea again, and we can, we can talk about that some more. Mm -hmm. But um, in 1836, there was an advertisement uh, for a, uh, a new keyed French horn. Um, and it was in capital letters, you know, and bolded. So it was mm -hmm. kind of exciting. Um, but in 1835, there was a review in the uh, New York Mirror. And it was August Alpic, who was also a keyed uh, bugle player, um, I believe. And then uh, William Nids, who came from England. Mm -hmm. And so the reviewer was quite upset that William Nids was playing a valved horn because though the horns were uh, paired, they were not matched. <laughs> um, yeah, he didn't like the, the openness of the, the valved horn. And that was common in Europe too. People just detested it. They thought that the, the spirit of the horn, uh, you know, the nuance that you can get with your hand and the way that that sounds, um, is just so like, there's so many different levels of atmosphere you can, you can do with that. And whereas 
just having open horn sounds it, they were like it's the same yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like a synthesizer almost right mm -hmm. <laughs> having that like mm -hmm. wall of sound the whole time yeah. yeah and that's actually that's one of my complaints about modern natural horn players you know you get someone like Lowell Greer who is fantastic and is so nuanced and so beautiful and then um someone who shall remain nameless uh, a famous horn player decides that they want to start playing you know natural horn and it just sounds like stopped modern horn mm, no, <laughs> i'm like yeah. it's not tasty yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting how those different timbral colors really make that big of a difference and it's like the uh yeah just just being aware of of that history and, mm -hmm. and knowing to be able to apply that is a, is a huge component of it which is which is interesting I think. yeah yeah that that whole like um the way that you know people's i guess uh you know likes and dislikes about just like purely sonic things have changed mm -hmm. over time when it when it comes to like brass style because like i feel like now the style is just so broad for like orchestral mm -hmm. brass playing and even like band brass playing but like you listen to a recording from uh, I don't know, like the the twenties or third, like not mm -hmm. the nineteen twenties or thirties, and it's the style is just so different, and it's it's interesting, and you know, obviously, this probably isn't the place to have a big long conversation about that, uh, but <laughs> it's always fascinating to me, like when you said how the European audiences didn't like the openness of the mm -hmm. valve torn, that it was like all on open fundamentals. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just that's just really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So horn, it did, you know, the, the natural horn persisted for a, a very, very long time. Um, I would say like 20 years longer in Europe than in America, just because the influence of brass bands after, once we hit the, the Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it, it's funny how much it parallels Europe, including like the introduction and import of uh, virtuosos. That was going to be my next question. Are Were there like horn soloists in America that were that were well known uh you know like even even before you know the 1860s um or oh, yeah. like who are some of those that you maybe uncovered when you were doing your research 1770s <laughs> 1770s huh, really. yeah so there was a, a pair of uh, guys who arrived to the colonies uh, separately, but then decided to kind of tour cities together and, and put on concerts. And they were both horn players, Mr. Stotterd and Mr. Humphreys. Mm -hmm. So they did a whole lot of um, of concerts and were very popular with, with audiences. Uh, in the 1790s, I think 1792 is when Victor Pelissier gets to um, Philadelphia via the Caribbean. I think that he was escaping one of the rebellions uh, in Haiti. Um, and he was the principal horn player and composer of opera, light opera for the old American company. Um, and so, you know, he got a little bump in pay too, which is kind of interesting to look at their records because of being a composer. Mm -hmm. um, but people loved his his solo playing and they would do little benefit concerts outside of the the theater itself the theater shows mm -hmm. um and i think that there is an article about him in the, the horn call that's quite interesting so he um he ended up dying in new, new jersey at a, a home for the blind at a very old age <laughs> mm -hmm. um and then in the 1800 like the the 18 the aughts, is that what we would call that? Um, of the 1800s, we see uh, Monsieur Michaud come from the Paris Conservatory. And um, he had his little eight-year-old son who played as well. 
Uh, so we, and we can look at those conservatory records cause he won a prize and nice. all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and then the Rosiers as well in the 1790s. And that was, you know, his, his wife actually played horn too with him. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, we'd see this, all of these people, especially from France coming and playing and, and being kind of these little virtuosi in America at that time. And then, uh, once we had the 1830s, we have an influx of Polish players because of the Polish, um, the failed revolution in Poland, gotcha. who were deported to America. I'm not sure how that worked <laughs> um, since we were a country at that point. Yeah. Um, and so we see some of the, the Polish players that had tr- musical training. And then in the 1840s is when we see that influx of German players that continues to the end of the, the 19th century. Gotcha. Yeah, that's really interesting. Was yeah. is is your lost legacy research primarily following these individual players? Like what what's what was the main focus or guiding kind of theme for that research for you? Mm, the main focus was just kind of showing that the the tradition of the horn didn't start in the 20th century. And so I was kind of looking at the big picture, looking at the players, looking at their equipment, looking at the shops that were selling equipment. What type of accoutrement did they sell? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who was making horns? Who was playing the horn? What were they playing? So it's kind of a broad overview. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually started the project praying that I would find enough. And I stopped the project. And it's, it is not stopped, by the way, um, <laughs> praying that I would stop finding stuff. Um, so this, this idea, like if you open any, uh, history of the horn book, like the, the big ones, right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Tuckwell book, there's the John Humphreys early horn book, uh, and a couple others, you know, there's nothing about America until you start talking about the New York Philharmonic, um, or, and before that, the only mention that any of these books make about the horn in America is they all say Jacob Don that came to America and was last heard from in 1806. So Jacob Dominic was the uh, brother of Heinrich Dominic, who had written multiple tutors about the horn. Their father was a horn player in one of the courts uh, in southern Germany in one of those little principalities. Uh, principalities. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that's the only mention about the horn in America until you get to New York Philharmonic and not really even 1842 New York Philharmonic, but more like 20th century New York Philharmonic. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, yeah, the players and the players who came in like that 1875 range mm-hmm. that really influenced American horn playing. Yeah. So prior to those major orchestras, including them, it, it was mostly like what you were saying, uh, military bands, mm-hmm. uh, Moravian and like mm-hmm. small, small kind of uh, like chamber ensembles kind of thing. Yes. And then um, if if you move to the South, of course, we all have to reckon with the legacy of slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the the identifying factors of a runaway slave in a lot of cases was, you know, they played the horn and it would be advertised as such looking for this slave. They ran away at such and such. They're a fine horn player. Right. Um, and so uh, even George Washington uh, and his horn player, who uh, eludes my memory right at the moment, uh, but Katie Ambrose has written quite a bit about, about him. Mm, interesting. So, and in that case, what we're talking about is like pastoral horn playing. 
something that would be akin to like those outside gardens in Europe. Um, okay. And then in a lot of cases, uh, pairs of horns with pairs of clarinets doing outdoor concerts. Gotcha. I would have assumed it was some sort of like signaling horn. I, I wouldn't. Oh, in that I case, would... yes, too. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, yeah even even uh, concert music it, that hadn't you know been a thought that this whole time that we were talking about that specific topic, I mm -hmm. didn't think that that was where it was going. So that's interesting. That, mm -hmm. that that yeah. Was... Yeah. And, you know, people would have parties and have a, a horn player, a violin player and a clarinet player as their mm -hmm. dance band um, gotcha. throughout the South. Gotcha. That makes sense. Wow. I know I've seen like in 12 years of slave, they show the, the violin playing, mm -hmm. you know, but I didn't know that they went into wind instruments also. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. I was wondering the, um, the, you know, the, the virtuosi who are kind of coming over, were they also, you know, teaching? Um, Cause one, one thing we haven't really talked about yet is, is any kind of notable teachers mm -hmm. of the horn and which obviously there had to have been some, you know, before, <laughs> before, um, you know, like you heard you saying, like, oftentimes you'll see the New York Philharmonic cited as like the beginning of the horn in America, but obviously that's mm -hmm. not true. <laughs> so right. we're, 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 there are some notable teachers as well. So in, in a lot of cases, those virtuosi weren't teaching because they were just touring. Mm -hmm. Um, and until you get to the mid 19th century, in a lot of cases, those teachers are still just a general master of music. So it could okay. be, you know, all every single instrument. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, though there were, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, I think it was Christian Parrish, um, something like that, who was teaching in uh, South Carolina. Uh, and so it often uh, would go hand in hand that they were a teacher of music and in the military. And so that would be kind of a recruiting tool. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an indentured servant, I think Albert Sch Schwitzel, um, Schwickel, that was his name, uh, who worked at a kind of like a pleasure garden in the South. And he was a horn, he, his, ad, his services were advertised by whoever owned his contract. Um, and then when we get to the 1850s, so my, my dissertation actually stopped in 1842, just because mm -hmm. of the influx of people at that point. And the, the data is a little bit unmanageable, mm -hmm. but I, I, anything that I found until like 1920, I would find it and categorize it, put it in a, all those binders that are behind me right there <laughs> and the yeah. note cards. Um, so you start seeing uh, somebody who does specialize in horn, 1850-ish on. Um, and then St. Mary's in, uh, I think it's in Maryland, they actually gave a prize for horn students. Um, and it was quite early. I can't remember the date, but it was the first instance of like university training uh, for, for horn that I found. That's cool. That it was like a, a monetary prize that they got from it or were they awarded a an instrument or something from them? uh it didn't say it was just it was i think that what it was is that it was modeled on the the paris conservatoire model mm -hmm. in terms of like a little competition mm -hmm. um, and of course at paris they would receive a horn with the little a garland on the the yeah i can't think of, it's not garland but the little patch on the the bell throat yeah. <laughs> You had mentioned earlier that um, 
part of your research, you were also looking at like shops and where these mm -hmm. instruments were, were sold out of, I'm assuming. I know in with the, uh, the early brass band movement, we kind of talk about how that nucleus was largely in Boston, the New England mm -hmm. area, uh, started happening in New York. And then later, you know, like Elkhart, Indiana, you know, like that mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. area. Um, it sounded like with the horn, you had mentioned that it possibly initially came up from the south, you know, maybe starting in Georgia and working its way up. What did you find in terms of uh, horn shops in, in those early years of the horn being in America? Uh, I would say that is exactly what happened. So South Carolina is mm -hmm. where there was a shop and somebody was selling uh, horns. Usually it was like a dry goods store or mercantile. Okay not a music store per se. Gotcha. Um, but then we did see, you know, Boston, Philadelphia, uh, New York City. Uh, there was even one in upstate New York at one point. Um, there was a maker in New York in 1760s, uh, John Dash. Uh, he was a German tinsmith. Uh, and so there are actually uh, extant instruments by him. <laughs> okay. uh, more bugles, though, I think or a hunting horn. Um, so you do see it in those, uh, those mercantiles. Then you start to see the music stores, like the ones in Philadelphia, New York city. Um, and then even, you know, I found them in like weird little towns, rural towns, as we see that Western expansion across the continent. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that they, you said they weren't always being sold in, designated music stores how they would mm -hmm. appear in other things do you think that that was just because uh there wasn't a local music store or was the horn at that time kind of viewed as more not as much of a musical instrument but more as like uh an object or like a good that would like be used for a function almost uh i would say probably as a, a you know an object of, in, in terms of function signaling that type of thing it was always equated with equestrian uh things mm -hmm. uh so that is very likely um and it would you know if you look at the advertisement sometimes you can tell if they were selling single horns or double uh, like a pair mm -hmm. um and that sometimes would give you a clue in terms of whether it was uh if you're thinking in terms of a hobbyist or you need a signaling instrument or if it was for musical purposes. Mm -hmm. We have kind of been able to, to touch on a few different areas of your research with, with early horn in America and stuff. It, it's possible that we've already talked about it, but maybe taking a step back and looking at the whole project, is there a, a specific either discovery or element that either you're particularly proud of finding or that maybe uh you find amusing <laughs> in, mm -hmm. in some way. Again, maybe maybe we talked about it already, but uh, does anything come to mind? Mm, let's see. As I was searching for these, I was actually um, having conversations with uh, John Humphreys in England. And so we would kind of tag team these research efforts. Um, so we were able to track the movements of William Daniel, who was one of the first, if not the first, graduate of the Royal Academy of Music in America. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, and it was weird because he went to like these really out there places. You would think he would go to some place like Philadelphia, New York City, and he ended up in like Ohio um, and somewhere in the South at one point. 
Um, and so he did, he played horn, he, he, uh, he played organ, uh, he sold some type of dry good, I can't remember what it was at one point, um, but his was one of those tragic endings, right? So he, um, there was a newspaper advert that I found, um, and I sent it to John because I was like, you are not going to believe this. Um, he was, his wife and daughter had gone to the store and he was underneath a blanket with one of those um, lamps that people would light and breathe in the fumes for their, uh, if they had some type of breathing issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, the flame caught the, the blanket on fire. Yikes. No. And uh, he burned to death and that's how his wife and, and daughter came home to find him. Ooh, my goodness that's rough so it's like the an extreme version of like the the mcdonald's cup being too hot it's like you would mm-hmm. think there would be like a warning on the lamp or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. yeah man that's terrible um, um and i think the other one was the the 1835 review of william nids showing that first what you know i haven't found anything earlier in terms of valve torn performance mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's awesome very cool. So I'm wondering with the, cause you've mentioned a few times that you're the, you know, the loss, like that project is still kind of ongoing. Mm-hmm. Are there any um, like questions that you have or rabbit holes that, you know, you haven't yet, <laughs> uh, you know, taken the dive down that you're, that you're kind of hoping to, to tackle um, or, you know, like what are some questions that all this has kind of brought up for you that you might want to explore? Mm. Uh, I think just expanding to all the municipalities, like it's a huge project to do all the, like people will usually focus on this one little thing, mm-hmm. one little area, right? One little town. Um, so I think I want to continue just finding these examples of horn and where they were and the fact that you could find it anywhere in America. Um, I, I think that that's really fascinating that we were just so excited about making music, making amateur music that um, you could find it there. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing uh, that that stands out to me is the fact that, you know, the thing that I mentioned about Jacob Dominic. So every single horn book <laughs> mentions this fact about Jacob Dominic coming to America last in, in like 1790 something and, and he wrote a letter to his brother in 1806 and that was the last that anybody heard of him Mm -hmm. uh, supposedly to philadelphia well he is the only person that i cannot find um and when you go back and look at those citations those books actually just cite each other (laughs) so it's like this round endless feedback loop Mm -hmm. um so i think the next step for for that search and actually his descendants have contacted me about being able to find him and they haven't found anything either um so i think the next step is to start looking at some of those german uh, papers uh in philadelphia looking at the diocese records Mm -hmm. um because that's the that final step i haven't actually done outside of newspapers yeah yeah i mean scrolling through the lists of horn hornists that you have on your website i mean just the they're well, first of all, it's a it's a very long list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and second of all, I mean, they're, you're right; they're spread out all over the place. So that's just kind of like a very impressive uh, kind of body of work that you already have done. Um, 
and you're right. I mean, most people focus on focus on one kind of geographical area, mm -hmm. whether it be Boston or you know any other kind of major city where you see a lot of these. So that's that's very impressive yeah. <laughs> that you're able to sift through all of that. And yeah. it's you know the the breadth of talent that came to America is kind of amazing for all instruments. I think like we think of you know that early American phase as like oh it's rugged, and then you know we have these musicians who are like I'm gonna go there, um, <laughs> in the different ways that they came here. So you know Philadelphia of course is that big entrance to the colonies. Uh, and then we have New York City, and most of the people are coming either directly from Europe or they're coming from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, there was a player in California, and he was like the first example I found of somebody who went directly to California rather than coming from the East Coast. Mm -hmm. um, Shot was his uh his last name and so he actually and this is linking back to Lowell Greer again and the Peru and the monastery in the horn um he came from southern Germany went to Peru played for a while and then made his way to San Francisco hmm. there you go. so I would say in the you know the journey of finding interesting things in the dissertation was that you know finding uh, female horn players as early as the 1790s uh, so madame rosier would perform with her husband and sometimes with a clarinetist as well with the pair of horns hmm. um, and then in 1830s there was Ka uh, catherine maria saxon with the saxon band um, and then in the 1880s when we start to see this proliferation of ladies bands um, some of the female horn players from from that group as well. Gotcha. And those would have been versions of valved horns by that point, or were they? You think that they were still on on natural horns that late too? Uh, in the 1880s, it was definitely valved horns because we have pictures of some of the sisters okay. that, for some reason, it was generally a pair of sisters <laughs> who played the horn. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have you know some of the pictures because they uh, appeared in. Uh, not vanity. All of a sudden, I want to say Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar. Uh, it was a feature about the the Fedettes Ladies Orchestra, mm -hmm. um, who played, I believe, in Boston. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I think the uh, the only other thing was the horn player in the 1770s named John Schneider. So, if you're familiar with Francis Hopkinson, yes, mm, no, no, no <laughs> names names not ringing a bell. Okay, Francis Hopkinson was in that that same vein as like the American exceptionalist <laughs> in terms of the all around guy who could do everything. He was a scientist, he was a writer, he was a musician. Mm -hmm. um, and when we, we talk about the founding fathers, he's in that group of people. Okay. Well, he had a little music group. And uh, he played, I believe, the harpsichord at that point, I would have to double check my notes but some type of keyboard instrument, right? And then he would have people come over and they would play. So John Schneider uh, was a German who played uh, violin and horn, and he taught lessons as well as a teacher. Um, so he was a part of that little intellectual group. And um, so I found an, uh, a notice that he had slit his own throat so you get to know these these little tidbits about these people, which I didn't yeah. think was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he slit his throat, but then he he lingered for like two weeks before he passed away. 
Yes. So they they were giving these updates. Oh man, that's a that's a dark turn right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, and you found that while you were doing the, mm-hmm. the doctoral research. Yeah, and yeah, so that yeah. was one of those interesting. You know, it made the people more real. I think yeah. finding yeah, yeah, these definitely. these little tidbits about them. Yeah, I was doing a similar thing. I was trying to see if there was any local brass bands there were but i was trying to find like the names of local brass bands in like the fairfax area Hmm. at one time and uh found a man named uh schroeder and he was between fairfax and dc a lot and i when i was Hmm. looking into him i found out that uh, blanking it it was either him or like his wife or father it was (laughs) it was one of them but it the name came up in a newspaper article and that they were arrested for having illegal firearms in their house and it's like it was like a, a big deal that was like a famous band leader arrested for illegal <laughs> firearms and it's like oh man mm-hmm. <laughs> good to know i guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what uh, uh sue kinney who researches uh the manchester cornet band was saying that um you know she's she has you know lots of diaries of family members and some of the the bandsmen actually and you know you really get to know them as people, you know, mm-hmm. and not just not just names that that pop up in research, um, you know, yeah. with all those personal kinds of things that that'll pop up in a diary or I guess updates about somebody's condition. Yeah. <laughs> who's bigger yeah. after they slit their throat. So mm-hmm. yeah. I wonder, wonder how dark to think about how that lasts for two weeks. Is it like just like infection eventually gets them or something like Right. They, like drowning for two weeks like what's happening mm-hmm. there? yikes it's not not fun not fun no and actually that is something i can share because i have the image of that that uh announcement oh, when they no 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 of the the he something about not being right in his own mind mm-hmm. um that type of stuff mm-hmm. yeah yeah wow. yikes <laughs> I know you had mentioned uh, when we were asking about the scope of your work, you said that it was important to you because you, you know, the the general taught history is that Horn started, you know, as we keep saying, roughly with the near Philharmonic, and that's mm-hmm. not true. And you wanted to to tell that story. Uh, I guess as as kind of a, another broad question for you, how have you found that this research maybe helped uh, either shape your your musicianship or your your uh, ability maybe even on modern horn uh, and even more broadly you know why why is this all important to be talking about kind of just generally hmm that's a big question yeah. do, you, do you still play modern horn uh if I have to <laughs> uh no I'm joking I do play modern horn um I would say that I I just approach modern horn in a in a very different way than I did before the research and in terms of uh, even when I'm playing modern horn I'm I'm thinking you know historically informed practice uh, how does it sound am I approaching it musically do I just sound like a 20th century oh gosh we're in the 21st century aren't we mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, horn player right uh, and I think. You know, we think about like that big Hindemith sound sometimes if we're playing like the Hindemith Sonata. Um, and it doesn't have to be this huge American sound. Um, it can be nuanced. It can be 
uh, it can be sensitive. Um, you know, we think about like the London sound versus the LA sound or the New York sound. Um, and it is like the American, uh, I'm gonna take some flack for this, but like the American tradition of horn playing tends to be very brash, um, very big, um, and that's okay, but there's also space in it with, for the history of the horn, I think that, that I've been able to, to locate here. And that, um, that diversity is okay to have. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the ideal application of this is? Is this something that, you know, college professors, professors should learn and then instill to their students? Or is this something that shouldn't like be happening earlier? Whereas I'm assuming like based on what you just said, the application for everybody is being able to take this knowledge and information, apply it to their own playing and become more well-rounded, well more nuanced, mm -hmm. more, you know, hireable for, for different situations based on those kinds of things. But, but where does that come from? The college teachers or what do you think? Uh, I think it could come from the college teachers. I think you know, just the, the horn world in general needs to know this type of information for us to be more informed about our instrument on this side of the world. Um, so I don't necessarily know that it would make anybody more hireable, but uh, maybe more well-rounded and having a good foundation in terms of the American horn tradition here. I notice uh, I'm able to see behind you, you have some instruments <laughs> hanging on the wall also. Um, mm -hmm. Have you amassed your, your own collection of, of various uh, early instruments? Uh, very few. So I do have that Baroque horn I was talking about earlier with the mm -hmm. nodal vents. Mm -hmm. uh, I have, there's a first plus horn up there on the wall. There's a trump. Uh, which I actually won at that Trump conference in Miami. <laughs> nice. Thank you. They were trying to start an American chapter of the International Trump de Chasse Federation, I think is the way that it, it comes out in French. Hmm. Um, and so that was a, a really fun experience. I learned how to do the little dog call in the horn, the tayate, uh, which is really hard to do, by the way. Um, I haven't even heard it. I'm not even sure what that is. But It yeah. sounds like a dog yipping uh, when they're on the hunt for a fox. Interesting. Um, that, and that's a technique that they tried to, to mimic through the horn for that reason? Yeah, and it comes from uh, the muscles in your stomach, not from the embouchure. It's kind of oh. cool. Um, and I heard like actually the most beautiful uh, Ave Maria on Trump with hand technique there too. Um, let's see, what else? I have a conch up there. Uh, I used to have a uh, 1875, I think it was a Teve horn, um, but it was stolen out of my car in Texas. Stop. 
And two and a half years later, we were able to finally track it down to a buyer in Germany and he refused to return it. Wow. Yikes. Wow. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Very rude. Yeah. Right? On, you know, all around there from being stolen to being not returned. <laughs> yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, no, it had a beautiful painted bell, everything. <laughs> I have a, so. a friend who had his Ophiclide stolen in Texas. So those. Those Texas thieves really like their <laughs> early instruments. Yeah, yeah. That was up. That was up in Denton. Though. Oh yeah, mine was <laughs> just south of Denton in Fort Worth. Oh yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm trying to. There was something. Oh, that's what I was going to say about Texas too. In the breadth of players, <laughs> it just popped into my head. Um, so there was shot in California, right? Then Portland, Oregon. There were players. Emil Herberger, who I found in. Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, but somewhere in Pennsylvania, Gettysburg, actually, <laughs> giving a concert. And then he was in Texas giving concerts yeah. while Texas was still a state. I mean, not a state, a country. There we go. <laughs> there <you> go. <laughs> I'm from Texas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they like to still think they're their own country sometimes, too. Well, yeah. all, all my family's down in Austin, so. Yep. Yeah. We certainly um, do. <laughs> <laughs> you think the Texas draw would come from some of the the German influence that was there as I know yeah in Denton as they have the the German town design in Denton so I know that there was a lot of German influence at least there yeah and then if you think about like Fredericksburg mm -hmm. um you know the and actually funny Germans had a treaty with Comanches and it's the only treaty that was never broken oh there you go um so Fredericksburg comes into play with the Germans there as well so yeah I do think that you know there's a history of of band um with the the German settlers in Texas for sure you mentioned the the Comanche and I know from online uh your different uh career paths and different interests of yours is what you're working towards now professionally related at all to this initial history have you been able to like your initial research were you was there like a, a a clear path that helped you get to there or is this a complete uh different track <laughs> it's a yeah it's a take a right right here yeah. um <laughs> right into the lake right yeah <laughs> yeah uh so i'm i'm kiowa comanche and apache uh apache tribe of oklahoma not western apache um, and so, you know, growing up, that was an important part of my life. Um, and so I did the music thing, um, got my degree, got my, the, the DMA, um, performed, uh, did historical performance stuff with brass bands in Florida. Uh, and then, uh, my grandmother passed away, my kaku, and, um, I was pregnant with my youngest son. And I realized that she wasn't going to be there to be the great grandma that I had and my great grandma. Mm. Uh, Cause I had my great grandma until I was 15, mm. almost all to myself. Cause my, my older siblings are 10 years older than, than me. And my younger siblings are 10 years younger than I am. Mm. Wow. So uh, my family hasn't spoken our language for four generations because of the boarding school tradition, mm. um, which actually does tie in with band funny enough. Um, yeah, because of the the federal boarding system. Yeah, mm -hmm. I know we were talking. I don't. Yeah, it might not be related. I don't. I apologize if this is not the correct thing. But we were talking to uh, Joanna Hersey mm -hmm. at uh, UNC Pembroke, 
and and she was talking about some of the the research that she's doing with brass bands at normal schools mm-hmm. uh is that is that are normal schools the boarding tradition and you're talking about or is that uh a different it's a little different oh, okay but what we do have is um you know and it's funny because it links back to fort augustine as well um at the end of the red river war most people haven't heard of that they don't know what it was mm-hmm. um but in the 1870s there were uh you know the cavalry was chasing down the last of the kiowa comanche uh, Apache, Cheyenne, um, trying to get them to come into the reservation. And we call that the Red River War. Um, so s- approximately 76 of those prisoners of war from the Red River War were sent to Fort Augustine hmm. in Florida, um, which was the Fort Augustine, uh, this, well, not the original site that replaced Fort Caroline, but yes, the original site for Fort Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, which they, at that point, was called Fort Marion. And now they've gone back to the original Spanish name, which is Castillo de San Marcos, I think. Um, And at the fort, uh, Richard Pratt had uh, basically total control over these prisoners of war. Some of them even brought their families, their wives and children. Um, And so he asked Congress, what should I do with them? They said, do whatever you want. So he, uh, coming from... Uh, like a West Point tradition, right? Military tradition. He cut their hair, uh, gave them uniforms, uh, did military training, uh, would take them out for shark hunts because they couldn't do buffalo hunts. They would camp on an island. They would do artwork. He, you know, they taught them how to read and write. Um, tourists would pay money to come in and, and watch the Indians uh, buy the artwork. Um, and so when it was done, he deemed that it was a success. success. So he came up with the plan at that point. And Richard Pratt is the man that's known to have said, uh, kill the Indian, save the man, meaning kill all that's cultural within them so that mm-hmm. they can join the, the rest of the civilized Forced race. Assimilation. <laughs> kind of yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So he went to Congress and said, I have this plan. Um, and so went to Carlisle in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. uh, and started the first federal boarding school there. And then there were regional boarding schools as well. And then there were also local boarding schools. So on my reservation, we had the Fort Sill Indian School uh, and a couple of uh, missionary-run schools as well. But our children, you know, at the age of like three and four, were sent up to Carlisle um, and other schools um, and often didn't come home at all. But Carlisle did have a very strong band tradition with uh, Dennis Wheelock. I think he was Oneida, was the the director. So these schools, the boarding schools, had these um, little military bands, sometimes orchestras. Uh, they would do parades. And then, you know, they're going through all this training to not be Indian. <laughs> um, but then they would go and do these concerts and the government would literally ask them to dress up as Indians to do them. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> so it does yeah. it does lead back to that as well. Yeah, yeah, but wow. so all that to, to say, um, you know, my family, because of the boarding school tradition, uh, no one had spoken Comanche since my great great grandmother, Maddie Pewinofkit. Um, my great grandmother knew some words and phrases, and she taught me what I knew. I was with her all the time. Um, my grandmother did not know any, and neither did my mother. Hmm. Um, so when she passed away, I started teaching the boys what I did know, mm-hmm. um, realized. Uh, what we don't know about the language, the state of our language, and the number of speakers. So uh, the population of the Comanche Nation is about 17,000. 
And that's not counting descendants, people who are not enrolled. And we have fewer than 12 first language speakers left. Yeah, wow. Wow. So that's when I made that U-turn, mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, um, of course. Well, it's and, definitely, definitely important, you know, obviously mm-hmm. to, to work towards preserving that and, and building it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, yep. Is it is it something that you've considered wanting to blend the two or are you kind of happy, uh, you know, in this different trajectory than you're in kind of right now? I know that we just spent time talking about how they're connected, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say yes. So I haven't been performing because, of course, because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I didn't realize when I started doing the language work and doing linguistics classes and going back for that other doctorate um, for the things I, I thought that I needed to know about language, um, I didn't realize how much of my music training I would be using in linguistics. How so? In terms of like transcription, being able to discern uh, differences in tone when somebody's mm-hmm. speaking. Uh, Comanche has a prosody where the length of a syllable changes mm. too. Um, and then we also have a very strong tradition of uh, Christian hymns that come out of the reservation era. Mm. Um, so I, for my second master's degree, I was actually transcribing the hymns and talking about the, uh, you know, this idea that we were being assimilated and being, uh, proselytized to, but yet the hymns are still very, very Comanche. Hmm. So um, in transcribing those, we have 50 that are Protestant hymns that are set in Comanche. So thanks. If you grew up in like the Southern Baptist church, you would recognize these hymns or the Methodist church. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, you'll listen to them and go, oh, wait, that's sort of follow on, but it's not quite what's happening there. And there's like lots of seven, eights, five, eights, um weird time signature things yeah it's cool um i was doing a lot of research on uh band music in hawaii for a little bit mm -hmm. and i know that their band tradition is very german influenced but then you can hear you know just a, a regular military german band sound to a lot of their marches but then they're very clearly not you know american or german marches too they they have their own unique flavor you know even beyond, you know, the titles, because, you know, the titles are obviously written in native Hawaiian and stuff, but Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Being able to hear that, that influence is very interesting there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's actually, I'm like, I I always wondered why I didn't have a a problem with mixed meter when it was introduced in junior high. (laughs) This is why. (laughs) (laughs) How how much more do you have with, uh, with that? It, it's in linguistics, correct? That, that you're. It's actually it's comparative studies, oh. uh, so cultural rhetorics and indigenous critical theory mixed with linguistics, so that I can gotcha. kind of form a Comanche linguistics. <laughs> hey. um, How much more do you have with that? I'm finishing up my comp exams right now. Nice. So is. And then uh, just the dissertation, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going for non-traditional. So uh, I'm thinking either interactive, uh, digital dissertation or a podcast dissertation. There you go. That's awesome that they provide you with that option. What what school yeah. is that through? Uh, Florida Atlantic University. Okay. They have a really strong comparative studies tradition. Um, so, you know, being able to have that flexibility is wonderful. Do you feel like your, uh, your dissertation or whatever that project is going to be at mm-hmm. the end is largely preformed kind of thing? You think it'll be a rather quick end or do you still kind of see that as being a little ways off? 
I thought I saw it being really quick, but now I think I see it far off. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like with the first dissertation, you keep on finding more and more. Yeah, and I, I, I think if I just stick with stick with the straight podcast, it it would be done. Um, but I do think it's important to be interactive. I think that it's important to see the journey um, that we created, like a digital space. I can't space um, for Comanche people to be Comanche. Mm-hmm. that's even digital um since we're spread out all over the world now and not just land based on our own land right here mm-hmm. yeah. to the again i apologize not as knowledgeable or well-versed in this as i should be or did the comanche have i know you just said it's spread out a little over the place do they mm-hmm. have uh any type of land currently or, or reservation or are they a tribe that doesn't have that currently well, we're actually in a battle with the United States government right now to say that our our reservation was never disestablished, just like the Cherokees. Um, just happened with the Cherokees and the Choctaws and the Chickasaws, is where they o- said like Oklahoma. half of Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mm-hmm. saw that. Yeah. Um, that so our like two months ago, right? That was pretty recent. Yeah. So we just filed an amicus um, on a, a prosecution of a, a man saying that our our tribal borders were never disestablished by Congress. We had the Jerome Act, which is different. Hmm. Um, so we have it, what we call the seven county service area here in southwestern Oklahoma, and our uh, headquarters is in Lawton. Um, and you know, funny enough, I started finding stuff about bands here. <laughs> <laughs> so Lawton and Adarko, they had these little amateur bands. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Cool. See, it is all coming together. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It all comes back to music. Yeah, of course. <laughs> this has been this has been a great conversation. I think it's the first episode that we've devoted specifically to the horn. I mean, we did one like on the alto horn with uh, Dr. Nathan Miller, mm. um, you know, specifically in like kind of brass band context. But this is the first time we've had a. A hornist on <laughs> you know had, specifically david ohani and on Arizona oh true too. yeah right with with norman bolter but um but this has been great uh you know great conversation where can people go to learn more about uh the lost legacy project um uh, and and the good research you're doing with that sure uh they can go to uh lost legacy on facebook <laughs> Um, and I have, because it's a Google site, I have the website set up as a link on there, um, where they can go to find it. Cause otherwise it's that really long gotcha. link, yeah, yeah. but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, lost legacy, uh, Facebook and they can find me there. They can also find me under Catherine PB Nofkit Reiner, um, both my regular page and then my, um, musician page. Gotcha. Great. Very cool. Yeah. I, and I know, uh, we were talking there at the end about your your phd work that mm-hmm. you're working on i'm sure uh if people are interested in that you know we'll we'll be able to help update people as as that project develops and, and keep up keep people up to date with that also is Absolutely. that something that you're going to update on your lost legacy page or are you going to keep those kind of separate uh i'm if it's something important i might update on lost okay. legacy yeah. um Great. otherwise anyone who wants to come and uh you know, come see what we're doing at Comanche Nation Language Department. Um, we have a bunch of stuff over there or speaking human because um, we talk about the, the, the way that we translate Nama in Comanche is that um, we're human beings. So when we speak our language, we're speaking human. Hmm. Hmm. There you go. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. 
Yeah, we'll have all those links up on our on our show notes uh, for people if they're interested. Uh, we encourage them definitely to check all that stuff out. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Briner. This has been a lot of fun. Very, very educational and and awesome honor that we finally got the to align our time to, to speak with you. Like I said, we've been uh we've been fans for a while and and uh, just happy that we've been able to line this up. So thank you so much for for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a joy to be here finally. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> thank you again so much to Dr. Briner for coming on to the show. As Stephen mentioned at the top, uh, we feel like the the horn is kind of one of the unfortunately neglected instruments, which you know, evident with her research, is a uh, not an uncommon thought. Definitely something that uh, you know helps spurred. Dr. Briner's research and, and interest in the development of the horns culture in America. So thank you to Dr. Briner for sharing that with us. Yeah, we were definitely very grateful to have her on and thank her for the time she took to speak with us. If you like what you're hearing, as we say at the top of every episode, uh, you can support us on all social media platforms as well as YouTube. Our website, eabbpodcast.com, has show notes for every episode and a bunch of resources. And we are also, we have a Teespring store. We can get some physical merch and some of Chris's arrangements are up there. And we have a Patreon page where we have some wonderful supporters uh, and you can join them over there. Uh, You can just search Early American Brass Band Podcast on Patreon and we'll come right up. Yeah, I uh, can't really emphasize enough. We, you know, Stephen, you and I love doing the show. We, or I, I'm not going to speak for you. I assume that you're with me, but I love the uh, the the interactions that we've had with a lot of people that enjoy listening to the show, and we really appreciate your support. The show isn't free to produce. Stephen and I are putting on the show out of our pocket. So by supporting us on Teespring and Patreon, you are significantly helping us by helping fund a lot of the out-of-pocket expenses that Stephen and I are putting on. So over on Patreon, I just want to quickly thank Natalie, Dominic, James, Rucha, and Trevor making the commitment to help us, you know, with whatever dollar amount they chose over there. We can't thank you guys enough for helping us out and help making this show possible. If you want to join these five awesome fans, like Stephen said, you can go over to Patreon and search for our show and we will come up. Yes, I agree with everything you said. I echo it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> no, they suck. No. Yeah. <laughs> that brings us to our featured album uh, for this episode, um, which we have chosen Brahms, comma, Beethoven, colon, Music for Horn, which is an album by Lowell Greer, um, and it has uh, a bunch of natural horn music on it, and it sounds fantastic. So there's um, some Brahms, some Beethoven, and some Nicholas von Kruft, which I've never heard of before, but I will after having listened to this album, um, or all of the album, at least. So uh, we'll have links to that in the show notes. So is that uh, comma and colon spelled out, or is that the punctuation? <laughs> no, no, that's the that's just the punctuation. That'd, that'd be uh, a really awkward album name if they spelled out the punctuation. It would be, yeah, yeah, that would uh, probably be too long to fit on the CD cover. Uh, but yeah, so we'll have links to that album uh, where you can purchase and stream it up on our show notes on our website. And I think that's about it. So we are signing off and we'll talk to you in the next one. Take care.